0: Design Matters will be back with a new season in a few weeks. In the meantime, we'd like to rerun an episode that originally came out in June of 2018. Working all the
1: time means that other parts of you are dying. You know, it's time, no money, or money and no time. And that's usually the way that it plays itself out.
2: Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor... Hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself... What will you create today?
0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with portrait painter Amy Sherald about her emotionally evocative work. I didn't know I was doing it until I had a show...
1: And I had like three people start crying while they were looking at the work. And I was like, what is wrong with y'all?
0: Here's Debbie Millman.
2: The subjects of Amy Sherald's portraits are African-Americans. They wear clothing with vibrant colors and patterns, and they stand out from richly colored, textured backgrounds. They look right at us, and they seem to be taking our measure. Their portraits are beautiful, luminous, and intense. When Sherald was asked to paint Michelle Obama's official portrait, she produced a painting that was a departure from the traditionally stodgy First Lady portrait. Wearing a voluminous dress, Obama is seated against a sky-blue background, and she's looking right at us, taking our measure. Amy Sherald joins me today to talk about the making of that portrait and her life and career as an artist. Amy, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, thank you. You grew up in Columbus, Georgia, Mm -hmm. the daughter of a dentist and a homemaker, Mm -hmm. surrounded by what you've referred to as generic Ethan Allen landscapes hanging above the fireplace. Your family was not an artistic one? No. Actually,
1: my mom, funny, she spent a year at the Cleveland Art Institute. I mean, she was born in 1935. I say that because she's 85 years old now. So even at her age, and I guess that was in her late 20s, it was not something that had a foreseeable future. So when I said I wanted to be an artist, she still did not understand what that meant. You know, there was no, like, I can see what this means. She didn't want to hear
2: it, yeah. Your parents raised you Christian, and I understand you had Bible studies in your house every Friday. We did, yeah. How did that influence you or impact you?
1: As a child, I didn't really think about it. I mean, we the church was a rather strange one, actually, because we— kept the Sabbath. So it was no TV after the sun went down on Friday until the sun went down on Saturday.
2: That's like Shabbat in the Jewish yeah, religion. Yeah,
1: yeah. So it was like a lot of Old Testament and New Testament stuff. But I mean, it's just what I knew is what I grew up in. So I never really questioned it. And then I kind of let it go once I left home to go away to school. And I mean, looking back, I really appreciate the kind of boundaries that it gave me, although they were very mythic, you know, they're kind of mythy now. I look back and I'm like, oh, eternal lake of fire. <laughs> um, but it's um, it's strange looking back. It was perfectly normal when I was a child to like have Bible study on Friday night, to not watch Saturday morning cartoons, to come home and have more Bible study. You know, it was it was completely normal. Is religion important in your life now? Not so much. I've tried it out in all different forms. And I realized that I more so appreciate living vicariously through people as they worship in whatever religion that they choose. And uh, I prefer to be what I just consider myself a humanist. Um, And I have different
2: friends from different
1: walks of life that are different religions. And, you know, I take a little bit from everything.
2: I understand that when you first started school you would draw pictures at the end of every sentence you mm-hmm. wrote and so whatever was in the sentence you'd bring it to life, a house, a flower, a tree, mm-hmm. a bird. What did your teachers and parents think of this?
1: They thought it was cute. That was just about it. My mom now she tells the story. Like she was an artist when she was in the second grade. But she didn't want you to be an but artist. But she didn't when want, you want me to be an grade. artist. No, she's she's literally driving the bandwagon now. Like she hopped on the bandwagon last year. And now she's like, she respects me. When I talk about that part of my life, I say that art isn't something that I chose to do, it's just something that I had a proclivity. I had, that, those are my proclivities to, to draw. And so um, it was easy and I didn't have to think about it. And as a little self-conscious introverted child, which I didn't know what that was, I just knew like I preferred to be by myself. That was the one activity that I could do by myself.
2: Did your friends or family begin to notice any strong artistic ability in these tiny little drawings? And does your mom still have any of them?
1: She does have some. She was surprised that I wanted to be an artist, but every single activity that I did outside of school was art. So I had the same art teacher from kindergarten to 12th grade because I went to Catholic school. And from K to 8, it was St. Anne's. And then from 9 to 12, it was Pacelli High School. And so... Mrs. Davis would teach us in school, and then she also taught after school, like, at private lessons. And so that's what I did my whole freaking life. And then she's like, you want to be an artist? I don't understand, you know? You said you want to be a brain surgeon when you were five. I'm like, uh,
2: They're holding you to that one? Yeah, yeah. I read that you remember being drawn to art in the second grade, like, art with quotation marks around it. Mm. What first caught your attention?
1: I think for me, it was how people looked. I was really drawn to the what I thought was the aesthetic of the artist. So, I mean, like the kind of Cyndi Lauper, Madonna, blue hair, like I was really drawn to people that were different. And when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and I finally moved out of Columbus, Georgia, and I ended up at Clark Atlanta University, it was the first time that I wasn't under my mother's thumb. And I shaved my head, I got a lebray. I went through, like, my grunge phase, and, you know, for me, like, it's my identity as an artist was expressed in that way, which is really interesting, because as you grow older, you realize, like, it has nothing to do with that, you know? But in the beginning, it meant everything.
2: You've written about attending private schools and being one of maybe two or three black children, Mm -hmm. and as a result, you were raised to be conscious of how you acted, spoke, and dressed. I imagine once you left home and were able to shave your head and wear all sorts of clothes of your own decision-making. It was a a real change for you. Mm -hmm. How did your parents respond to that change?
1: My mother was embarrassed. Um, My dad was pretty silent about it, but I don't think he approved. But I like to consider myself his favorite, so I got away (laughs) with whatever I wanted to. You know, I went to a historically black college because I needed to have that experience, Because from kindergarten to 12th grade, you know, there was like eight black people in my high school and like three between K and eight. And so I really needed to not be black Amy. But again, like I went through that phase and that that phase made me not cool on the black college campus. So I was still like an outsider, an inside outsider in a way, you know. But yeah, she, you know, she had to get over it because I was pretty adamant about who I was at the time.
2: You were teased while you were in high school, and junior high school. I mm-hmm. read that you were called zebra, bumblebee bitch, old yellow. Um, I'm sorry to even have to repeat those words. <laughs> um, how did you manage? It didn't
1: bother me, but I also felt like at some point I had to stick up for myself because my brother got teased too. And so in sticking up for him, I would stick up for myself. And I, that was like the first time I said my first curse word. I think it was, like, fifth grade, there was this girl named Robin. I'll never forget her. And she was brown, too. Like, she was Indian or something like that. And she had been saying it to me over and over and over again, and I was, like, trying to ignore her. And then I said, you shut up, you bitch. And then she, like, "Ah!" and she couldn't believe I said it, and she, like, left me alone for the rest of, like, our elementary school career. Like, that was it, you know? Standing so, up to
2: bullies. Yeah. I know that in sixth grade, you took a field trip to a museum, and it was the first time you saw Beau Bartlett's painting, Object Permanence, mm-hmm. in which the white artist, Bo Bartlett, painted himself as a black man. And I know that that was a really profound moment for you. Can, mm-hmm. you. can you talk about that a little bit? In hindsight, I was in the sixth grade, so
1: I don't think I really, really understood what was happening. I just realized that I had never seen anything like that before. It was a shock to my system. But I also remember in that moment that I had this moment of self-determination where I'm like, this is what I want to do. Like, I knew in that moment seeing that painting that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make paintings like that. I wanted them to have people in them and beautiful skies and, you know, the kind of simplicity of
2: um, everyday American life that he portrays in his work. Did you know that he was a white painter painting himself as a black man in that
1: painting? I didn't find that out until, like, three years ago. I never knew. When I saw it, and I don't know whether this is just because I was raised in the South, and, like, that's just my mindset was, was formed by, like, all these different external directives, but, like, he had, like, you know, utility belt on and stuff like that, and um, there were two white children and a white uh, woman, and he was. they were standing in the front yard, so I just assumed he was, like, the maintenance guy or whatever, you know. So um, finding that out, you know, it really—I was, like, kind of shocked. I was really shocked, yeah.
2: You said this about the experience of seeing it. I've forgotten a lot of things. I've forgotten how to play the piano and how to speak Arabic, though I studied it for two years. But I'll never forget how much it meant to me to see myself in mm-hmm. that museum. Um, Arabic and the piano? Yeah. <laughs> You've forgotten both? I did.
1: Oh, no. I'm like, you know, I can, like, when I'm, I can spell like, and about if I ought be you know, but, and it makes me angry about the brain because I would be a genius right now because I'd be fluent in German and Arabic and Spanish. I would play chess, you know, but you get busy with life, and all of a sudden it was, it was gone.
2: In addition to being a dentist, your father mm-hmm. also started a barbershop. Mm-hmm. And you've stated that all the women in your life had master's degrees and were teachers. And mm-hmm. as a result, your dad told you that the civil rights movement was not about you being an artist. Yeah, that's what my mom said. Oh, your mom said that. Yeah. What gave you the sense that you were going to do it anyway? I didn't feel like I had a choice. Because you went to school. You went, so you said to Yeah, you it was a fear. A like I had a fear you of... You went pre- pre-med.
1: Yeah, because so my father was one of the first black dentists in Columbus, Georgia. And then, you know, other people started moving in and they were, you know, these doctors came together and they really, they were pushing for young black students to take on those professions so much so that they were willing to help us pay for school. And so I kind of felt pressured into doing it, but I really didn't want to do it, you know, but it's like, those were my choices. It's like, it was my great grandfather that started the barbershop. So it was started in 1898. So it was the oldest black-owned business in Columbus. So it was that, which obviously I wasn't going to be a barber, although I, you know, enjoyed it. My great uncle had a mortuary that was next to my dad's dental office, which was always fun as a kid to go in and, like, poke at people. Um, Sounds like a fun home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I didn't want, you know, like, that That never crossed my mind to even become, the, to, to, to own a mortuary or take over his mortuary. So it's, I don't know, I just kept, I've always listened to my inner voice. Like, it's something that's really, my intuition is really strong. And so um, I tried to do what my parents wanted me to do, but my life didn't really start to come together until I started to make my own decisions about what I wanted to do. And, And that's what I tell a lot of young people. It's like, it's almost magical what happens, like, once you commit to what you were brought here on this earth to do, once you commit to that, it's like your life is charmed and things just fall into place the way you need them to. It's really kind of crazy.
2: I read an anecdote about a man that talked to you about Talent, and it sort of Mm -hmm. now is connecting to the idea of forgetting Arabic or forgetting how to play the piano. And he said, Mm -hmm. um, "You were talking to a person who was in front of the library at your school, yeah, selling art, art. Mm -hmm. and he asked to see some of your work, and you showed him, and he warned you that if you didn't use your talent, you'd lose your talent. Mm -hmm. So there, I guess, if you didn't use your Arabic, you lost your Arabic,
1: yeah, (laughs) and that did shock me, and I immediately decided that I needed to change my major." And so
2: that was your junior year. Yeah, going into my junior year. And so you started to take art classes with the Panama-born artist Arturo Lindsay, Mm -hmm. whose work focuses on the African influence on the cultures of the Americas. Mm -hmm. And you've said he opened your eyes to what it was like to be a living artist.
1: Yeah, he was really the first living artist that I knew, right? So I had gone to the museum when I was in the sixth sixth grade, but there's like nothing beyond that, honestly. And then he sent us to an exhibition he was having in Atlanta, and that was the second time. And I was just like, this is amazing, you know? And then I begged him to get into his class because the painting class was full. He let me in, and then eventually I begged him to let me work with him. And, like, I brought these paintings over that I was doing. It was like your kind of typical, like, the face of Miles Davis that everybody does, that close-up shot and then some, like, images that I had torn out of National Geographic magazine that I had, like, tried to render. Um, and he was really nice about it because I'm sure they were really, really bad. But he let, me, he let me work for him, and I worked for him for free for five years. But I got so much out of it that it's been worth it, and now I call him my
2: godfather. You also worked with Odd uh, Nerdrum, mm-hmm. which— Many years later. What— was that experience like? His work is unbelievable. It is,
1: yeah. I discovered his work in graduate school and just had the impetus to contact him. It didn't work out. I couldn't figure out a way to get in touch with him. And it just so happened that the next year, one of the teachers in the painting department decided to bring him down to Micah. He had a show up here at Forum Gallery, so we came down to do a talk. As soon as I found out he was coming down, I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get there early. I'm going to let him know I want to study with him and all that, honestly, for me, took all the courage I could muster up because I was so intimidated and just, you know, still self-conscious, like to the point where I couldn't even speak in public without crying. And I was like 28 years old, you know what I mean? So I was a little weirdo. So I did that. I got there early and I saw him walking down the stairs of, of one of the buildings and he just happened to be walking down with Barry who brought him. And Barry said, this is Amy Sherrill, you know, and he pointed to one of my paintings and he was like, oh, nice to meet you. What are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, well, I want to come study with you. And he's like, oh, okay. well, talk to my wife then, because she takes care of all that. And I did that. And then funny story. So there was a reception afterwards and uh, the person who was supposed to take him back to the train station, their car broke down. And so um, somebody walked up to me and says, um, I need a ride back to the train station. Can you take them back to the train station? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And then I was like, okay, now i got to find a car because I don't have a car. I wasn't even driving. (laughs) And so I, like, ran around frantically, like, asking people, you know, and um, my friend Dana, she was like, yeah, sure. So we did it. And, you know, I was able to put that in the letter to remind him because he had students all over the world writing to come study with him. And I'm like, I think that's, you know, like, those little things like that that just work out, you know, because
2: you're ready. You said that you learned more in the experience of working with him Mm -hmm. for four months than you did in your entire school experience. Mm -hmm. Why is that?
1: You know, there were students there that were coming from the Florence Academy, you know, and Spelman had a great art program, but it wasn't not comparable to, like, that kind of art program. So they were just really well-versed, and I got to see how they started their paintings and watching him, how he started his work, and... um, It really helped me clear up some things because, you know, when I changed my major, when I was a junior, I really didn't have a lot of time to, like, take these classes and catch up. And so they let me do uh, directed studies. And so I really, in a way—I and mean, I really do, not even in a way. Like, I consider myself self-taught because I had to figure a lot out on my own. And just the more I painted, the better I got. And then being there with him kind of made it all click. And when I came back, I didn't paint for— almost four years but my first day back in the studio after four years of not painting but thinking about it every day was like one of the most beautiful moments because i was like i was finally at ease with it and i wasn't struggling with some of the basic things that i probably would have learned had i been able to take more extensive classes
2: you just referenced not painting for four years so after you got your master's degree in fine arts from MICA. You left Baltimore to return to Georgia to take care of your ailing family, several members of your ailing family, and you didn't paint then for four years. Um, You said that caretaking satiates something inside you, that you didn't miss painting when you were taking care of your family because it comes from the same place. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting that I didn't because, you know,
1: really for a short time, I was like, do I even want to paint anymore? But then what else would I do? It's a salient Part of who I am is I like taking care of people. Like some people are just born with empathy and they're just born to do that. And so I really enjoyed the challenge of caring for my great aunt, who was 94 years old and making sure that she was comfortable, you know, so like I put her in a position then I would go lay in that position to see how it felt and then like adjust it based on like what I thought was comfortable and uncomfortable, you know. So just really being intuitive about what she needed. And yeah, I just really, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, my father wanted me to be a doctor. And although I didn't want to, I felt like I would have been a good one, you know, because he had me work with one of his friends who was an internal medicine doctor for a year and I was able to follow him around. And, you know, I was like, I could really do this. But my father had a master's degree in biology and he tutored me and I just kind of passed my tests. And it's not because I didn't know it because he's like, I know you know it, but I was just like a poor test taker. And in 1992, nobody knew what a visual learner was, you know, so I was just like, I don't know, it's like, it's like Arabic when I look at it, I was like, I can't even understand what I studied last night when I looked at it, you know.
2: Yeah, I have a hard time with standardized tests, and I also have a hard time with maps, I have a hard time yeah. with directions, I'm yeah. always sort of It's like I go blind. <laughs> yeah,
1: it just like all kind of comes together and gets blurry.
2: While you were in painting, while you were taking care of your family, did you question whether art was your true path, whether you would go back to it? Did you have a sense
1: that? I did. Yeah, I questioned it. And I tried to make some things work out while I was there, like tried to get a studio, but it it just didn't work out. And I just, you know, I always thought back to that one part. And I was just saying recently, like I needed to reread this book, but I just thought back back, um, to The Alchemist. And that part, the guy's in the crystal glass shop and he's like, he's working and he feels like he's not moving towards his goals. But, you know, you come to realize that things are happening whether you realize it or not. So you feel like you're running in place, but the world is still moving, you know. And if I had done all the things that I wanted to do at the times that I wanted to do them, then maybe... I wouldn't have been right at the right place at the right time for some of the greater things that happened, you know, like including being able to paint Michelle Obama.
2: Let's talk a little bit about that recurring dream that you had. Uh, as you were growing up. I always had,
1: regret telling
2: that because it sounds so crazy. No, it doesn't. But it doesn't at yeah. all. I mean, it's so interesting. I've had a number of conversations this week with a theme that keeps recurring. People keep talking to me about the fact that they feel like they're not living their life's purpose. Mm-hmm. And now here I am having an interview with you where it's very clear what your life purpose was once you found it. Mm-hmm. And then everything, as you say, clicked into place. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were lots of struggles along the way, one of which being your heart. Mm-hmm. And so so talk about this recurring dream if you can. Um, and, then, and then what happened?
1: So I want to say I was like 13 or 14 and I saw my first Ironman and it was the most profound thing I had ever seen. And I, I feel like it was the one where the father had pushed his son through the whole race, you know, like swam with him, put him in the boat. He was like paraplegic or something like that, like couldn't move, but they wanted to do the race together and i was like i want to do that too and it's just always been a dream of mine but i also my whole life i had a recurring dream that i would run a race cross the finish line and i would have a heart attack and i didn't really think much of it until i um was in graduate school and that's where i met one of my closest friends whose now husband had completed an ironman and he was like yeah, sure, i'll train you you know so i started swimming and and you know biking running and all that stuff and uh um, I just decided to go to the doctor. I didn't have insurance at the time because I was in grad school. So, but we had, um, you know, like a little clinic that we could go to. So I went to the clinic, and they were like, you know, well, you look pretty good. You're healthy. Um, you have a regular heartbeat. And I said, well, I've always had that. And then they said, well, we're just going to check it out just in case, you know. So I wore a halter monitor for a while, and that was a little skidsy. So they're like, okay, we're going to do a sonogram. And I just remember the doctor saying, wow. And I'm like, what? It looks great. And he's like, no, you have the heart of an 80-year-old woman. And I'm like, how is that even possible? Like, I just ran an eight-minute mile yesterday. And he's like, you did what? And I'm like, yeah. It's like no, just no symptoms at all. Outside of the fact that I couldn't push past an eight-minute mile, and I was like, that makes sense now, you know, because I thought it was my asthma or something like that. But um, yeah, like that moment, my life changed because my identity as an athlete, like, had to come to a complete stop. And that was something I, I really didn't realize, like, how much that was, a part of who I thought I
2: was until that moment. Well, in 2012, um, on a trip to Rite Aid for some supplies, you felt a flutter in your chest, Mm -hmm. and you passed out and woke up on the ground covered in blood. You were then taken to the hospital in an ambulance and ultimately had to receive a total heart transplant. Mm -hmm. Um, And I understand you then took another year away from painting. What was that experience like, and how are you feeling today?
1: It was kind of scary. You know, like, I always like to consider myself a preparer, you know, so... <laughs> How do you prepare
2: for that? <laughs> I don't know.
1: <laughs> I used to, like, I, I tell this story when I was 16. Um, I was driving to school, and I left the same time as my neighbor, who was an old gentleman, would come out. He would come out the same uh, time every morning at 8.15 and start his car. And... Uh, I left that morning, I saw him go out and start his car. I came back and I noticed the car was still running because I could see like the white smoke coming from the back of it and I was like, huh. And so I walk next door and I look through the screen door and like there he is, his head is back and he had a, he had, had a massive heart attack. And so for me like, that was really like my first confrontation with death and for some reason in that moment I was like, I think I need to prepare. I need to prepare for my mom to die, I need to prepare for my dad to die because like this is so real and it's like you never know when it's gonna happen. And so I had come across this documentary. Um, I can't remember her name,
2: but she was like a death coach. Do you know who I'm talking about? It's I, like, I, there's been so much now written about yeah. understanding death better and yeah. um, death welcomers. Um, yeah. But I don't but know She
1: was a doctor, and yeah. she didn't like the way that doctors were speaking to their patients because they weren't really being honest with them about what was happening and with their treatment. And then when it came time for her to die, like, she was really not ready for it. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting because you spent your whole life in passion to do this work. And so, you know, when I had, um, when I had gone to the right, Aid, i had gone there to buy some saran wrap to wrap some paintings that a collector was coming to get because it was my first acquisition. And the work was going to the National Museum of Women in the Arts. And um, when I had that flutter and I woke up and I was like, oh, shit, what happened, you know? they put me in the ambulance and it was like the worst place to black out because it was like a neighborhood that had a methadone clinic. And it was just like heavy traffic and stuff. And so I ran into a woman who saw me, who, who just happened to be there. And I ran into her a year later and she said, yes, like people were just stepping over you oh because they God. just thought, you know, that that had just blacked out, you know. And so luckily the manager came. But when I was in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, I felt the fear because I really felt I like my heart felt weak. Like I was already to the point where I couldn't really, I shouldn't have been walking. Like I walked from my house to that drugstore. I was getting out of breath walking to the bathroom, but I was like, you know, I'm like superwoman to myself. I'm like still a triathlete. So I was pushing myself. I thought about that documentary. I thought about that moment. And I'm like, I can't die scared. Like I need to make peace with this. And there's really no way to know how you're going to feel in that moment. Because even in that moment, you're still not really confronting death, like in a real, real way, because there's still a chance you're going to live. But um, I just talked myself out of being afraid and um, a little bit of levity, you know, like not like Sally Mae can kiss my butt, you know, like I don't have to pay taxes anymore. so many things that I'm going to be able to escape. Yeah. So I just, I don't know. I was, in, I was in the ambulance by myself. So like I had nobody else there to come for me but myself. And that's when you really got to stand up for yourself and, and just walk, walk the walk. Did that change the way you wanted to live? Not really, because I've always been the same person when it comes to how I live my life and the kind of decisions that I make and just really being authentic. So no, it didn't. But I live harder now, which I lived hard before, but now I feel like, you know, I'm the living legacy of of a woman, and my life is to be lived in her honor. And so I think about, I think about that a lot. But I've always been, you know— like, a giver. I'm always the person that's, like, pulling out the dollar bill, you know, like, the homeless guy or whatever. Like, it's always, that's always been a part of me. Um, So I I I didn't really change, I didn't really change from it outside of the fact that, like, I feel like I'm less afraid of not being here anymore.
2: I know you have a relationship with your heart donor's family, Mm -hmm. and you've stated that everyone should be an organ donor, Mm -hmm. and I agree. And for anyone that's listening that would like to eventually donate their organs, where where can they sign up? Where is the easiest way for people to be able to donate their organs?
1: When you um, go get your driver's license renewed, I think that's the, the quickest way. And I it's funny, I went to go get mine renewed and I was sitting there and it was like a year and a half after my transplant and I watched like 20 people go up and then they, they asked them the question and they all said no. And I wanted to be that weird chick that stood up. It's like, hey, look, guys, you know, like you could end up with a person that has your organs like me. But I just kind of sat there. But I realized that there's, you know, there's a lot of work to be done because people are really afraid of it, and it's nothing that you would ever really confront. You don't really think about it until it's your family member, you know, and then you're like, wow, like this would really have made a difference. It's one of the most important things you can do, and it's the legacy that you can leave behind, like the gift of life. It's just such a beautiful thing.
2: Everybody that's listening. Sign the back of your license. Was it hard to come back to painting for a second time? It was,
1: because there were so many things that were affecting who I was. It's like, they don't explain to you the effects of the anti-rejection drugs, and because I was in childbearing years, I had to take more, and they're neurotoxic, so you feel kind of crazy all the time, and like you're a little bit anxious and a little bit depressed and a little bit angry, not really sure what's happening, so... I remember I, was, I called some friends of mine and I was like, you know, I don't think I want to paint anymore. Like, this is stupid. I don't want to do this anymore. I need to do something more meaningful. And I just don't like it, you know. And I was, like, looking at master's degrees in urban planning, like, anything else for some reason. But then I went to see a transplant psychiatrist and I got my brain back together. It's like whatever chemical imbalance happened from the surgery. And then I was like, oh, well, I actually do want to paint now, you know. It just like, but it took me a year and a half to get that together.
2: And at that time, were you still waiting tables?
1: No, but that time, so I quit waiting tables. I got the transplant when I was 39, so around 37. I knew I had to make that jump and be full-time, you know, and it just so happened that I had kind of had the choice to set my life up where I was uh, house-sitting for a doctor who had decided to go practice in Florida. And so I took care of his house and watched his house, and so when I did quit, I only had to worry about paying for my studio. So if I was like living off 150 bucks a month, it didn't matter because at least I had a roof over my head. Because that was the case for probably the first year. It's just like eating frozen food and, you know, trying to make it happen with what little I had.
2: I read that you said about waiting tables that you did a job that you didn't want to do so you could do a job that you wanted to do. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. You don't, you
1: never want to become complacent. And for me, there was a desperation to not have to do that anymore. And there's some aspects about it that I enjoyed because I worked for an amazing chef. He was just awarded a James Beard Award. And like I learned a lot about food and wine and really passionate about that and inspired by a lot of chefs because they're inspired by art. But um, part of you know how we manifest our lives, I think, is from that kind of desperate energy that you push out and pull in and, 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 it, and it draws whatever it is. That's supposed to be into your world, into your world. But I think if if you have an option, if you're okay, if you don't need to pay your rent, if you don't need to eat, then things, I truly believe, they play out a little differently.
2: You've stated that you don't think your success would have come to you as easily had you not committed to making the work in such a way that made you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. First of all, I love that you think that your success has come to you easily, given what we've just talked about. (laughs) But, But how does your work make you uncomfortable?
1: I think I was talking about the other work, not my work necessarily, but the work that I had to do to, to support the work. That that was uncomfortable because as a 36-year-old, 35-year-old, 37-year-old, it's like there's a little bit of, of shame that comes along with that because you're older, your friends are having babies, they're buying Mercedes Benz and shopping for patio furniture, and I mean you're at work every weekend doing something that they don't understand and you know, they kind of think of you as like wasting your life away because they don't share the vision that you have and you know exactly who you're going to be. So I really thoroughly enjoyed all of the success that I've had because I'm able to like poke my tongue out on those people and be like, yeah, you know, you didn't believe in me. And if you had, you would have bought a painting when it was a thousand dollars and now you would be rich. You know what Uh I mean? But it's just, you know, (laughs) it's those kinds of things that make me giggle.
2: Let's talk a little bit about your style and your process. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your use of color. Early on, you had a friend who suggested that it would be easier to paint flesh if you did so in grayscale first. And he suggested using black and Naples yellow over black and white, Mm. which comes out very silver. And you tried it and liked the result of the gray skin and decided to keep it. Mm. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose to move forward with that specific look philosophically?
1: I was going through the process of trying to figure that out. It's those two colors, just those two colors, but they're not over the black and white. I prefer it to the black and white because it does it's an icy or kind of gray. But I think, you know, because the work that I was doing in graduate school, it wasn't what I needed it to be. And when I tried to go back to it, I knew inside of my heart that it wasn't sophisticated enough to get me where I wanted to be. And after the journey of like spending a year trying to figure out what I was going to make and not being productive in the studio, like going there, sitting and leaving there feeling like, is this ever going to work out? Because I couldn't figure out what it was, you know, and having that epiphany where, you know, I saw the movie Big Fish and like it clicked for me what what I thought was necessary that I felt like was missing from the conversation in the contemporary art world. And so I really knew that I wanted to to make these images of these paintings of black people that were just that, just paintings of black people. And so for me, I think I was um, subconsciously a little afraid that the conversation would be pushed into a corner. And I didn't want the work to be marginalized in that way because I needed it to live and to be bigger and to you know exist in a different space. And so that's I think why I settled on that, and I you know, I say all of my decisions, of course, at first, are aesthetic, so like things look cool first, and then you're working on them, and then the words you know, you sit back as you' you know you're you're streaming through your subconscious, and so it's it's hard to be aware of those two things at the same time, so like when you're done, you sit back and you look and you have conversations with people, and like, yeah, that's I think that's what happened, so
2: I have two questions about that. The first is about your decision to exclusively paint people of color. You did that while you were at MICA. How did you arrive at that decision?
1: It was a natural decision for me. Um, I don't think it was a choice because, I mean, I don't think white people sit around and think I'm only going to paint white people. Like, they paint their ideal selves. And I, I'm painting my ideal self, you know. People ask me at artist talks, like, are you ever going to paint... Anybody white, like, you know, I think we we think you should. And I'm like, well, I think you should reconsider what you're asking me because (laughs) you need to take you need to take a little walk around the museum and you should probably open up a history book or two and then get back at me because I think it's really interesting how they can see the absence of themselves, but they can't translate that and see how I may feel that there's an absence of myself within our history and just, you know, and just in general. Um, so that's it's just really funny to me when that happens. But I mean, I have no reason to paint white people because like Carrie James Marshall said, he's like whiteness has been perpetuated for centuries. It's like, what do I have to do with that? I have nothing to do with that. So I'm wholly committed to <laughs> to putting more images of people that look like me in museum institutions and changing the expectations of what people think they should see when they go to a museum and creating spaces for Black people to walk into places like that and be confronted by an image of themselves where they will feel loved and affirmed. I also think that other people who are non-Black can look at the work and possibly, because you subtract the way that we identify with each other through skin color, to possibly be able to internalize Blackness and see themselves in a way, like, in, in these images, like, I, I always say, like, I totally identify with Reese Witherspoon, legally blonde. Like, I watched that movie, and I'm like, I've internalized white women to the point where I can look at her and see myself, you know? And I think, for me, that I think that's really an important part of the conversation in, about race in the States. It's like there's this, there's still, like, a separation.
2: What created that cathartic moment while watching Big Fish?
1: It was, like, a, a little a feeling of jealousy, of, like, wanting to have access to those kinds of narratives and feeling like you're written into history in one way and wanting to expand my identity in that way. And a lot of that had to do with, um, you know, feeling like I was, like I only had nine years to live, you know, after being diagnosed when I was 30 and really wanting to figure out who Amy was outside of all the external directives, like outside of the, you know, I was raised to be a Christian, you talk this way, walk this way, like, you're completely codified from birth. And, you know, like, who am I outside of outside of all that? Like, what parts of me are really me? And I think that's moving back home really was the impetus for me to really ask those questions about who I was because I realized that I shifted back and forth into a performance, especially in my hometown because of the ways that I grew up, you know, and the interactions that I had and the the kind of whiteness that made you feel like you had to prove your your own humanity, you know, that, that you were smart. You know, I don't, I don't feel that way everywhere. I am only as black as you are white, and there are certain people that really live in their whiteness, and in Columbus I felt like that was very present, you know? Like, I never associated the flag with myself. Like, I associated it with those kinds of people. So that performative aspect of my identity and, like, race as theater were really things that really sparked that conversation, and then wanting to step outside of that and see what else was inside of me.
2: Your paintings are extremely emotive. You can't help but feel something when you're looking at the people that you paint. Has it always been that way? I haven't been able to find much of your early work. Mm-hmm. It almost feels as if your work came out fully formed. Mm-hmm. And You will never see, <laughs> never ever see the old work, no but there is a certain presence to every single portrait you've painted and it feels as if it just happened that way mm-hmm. how how did you get to that particular moment in your work and know that that was what you wanted to continue to pursue i honestly
1: can't say that i knew that i was doing it when i did it you know i think the first moment that that thought even crossed my mind because i've always been you know, I'm like, I always say I have a healthy amount of self-doubt. Like, I'm just, don't think I'm that great. You know, I'm like, I told people, I'm like, I'm not here because I'm the best painter. I'm here just because I worked hard and I didn't give up. And sooner or later, everybody else gives up and you don't. So you end up at the top. But Do you I, really believe that? I mean, kind of. <laughs>
2: kind of. Yeah. I mean, you're extremely right. young. You, your paintings are just unbelievably amazing. Yeah. Um, I, it just feels like it's more than just working hard or luck.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what—I mean, it, it kind of is because it's not empirical. Like, there's two million people trying to be artists at the same time as you. And who gets to be chosen, and then who's chosen, and then who's still going to be there in 25 years? It's like you really—there's strategy to that. Like, it's it's definitely, in a lot of ways, it's not random because there's ways to do it. You just have to be aware and, like, look at the system and see how it works. But, yeah, I don't—I didn't know I was doing it until I had a show— And I had like three people start crying while they were looking at the work. And I was like, what is wrong with y'all? You know, so it's just really, it was just really a moment for me. I was like, something about what I did is moving these people. And I don't quite understand how to explain it. I mean, the, the way that I explain it is that, you know, I'm so particular about the people that I paint and like what kind of energy they hold within themselves that maybe somehow that
2: is what's translated into the work. But I don't know. So you use models for your work, and you essentially pick people that you see on the street, then you photograph them outside before painting them. How do you first choose and then approach the people that you're interested in?
1: I kind of live my life, and I find people, I see them. I met the last two models that I painted for my show at Camp St. Louis came to me, because when the movie Black Panther was out, I contacted a friend of mine. And I'm like, I want to raise some money to send a whole school to see the movie. And he put me in contact with this young woman. And she was a uh, alumni of the school. And she's like, I would love if you would help me do this. And so I, when I went to go meet her, she was there with a friend of hers. And as soon as I walked in and I brought my assistant with me and she was like elbowing me like, you got to paint them. I'm like, I know they're perfect, you know, so it just kind of happens like that. And then you also find what you want that person to wear. They're not just wearing what. Yeah, they sometimes they walk are. In. Yeah, sometimes they are that walking archetype. And then sometimes I figure out what I want them to wear.
2: Let's talk about one of your paintings that has captivated our culture: your mm-hmm. portrait of Michelle Obama, which was unveiled alongside Candy Wiley's portrait of Barack Obama earlier this year, and marked the first time official portraits had been created by Black artists. Tell us a story of how the commission came about. Well, the National Portrait
1: Gallery worked with the White House curator, and they gave them a portfolio of, I heard, like 21 artists, and they made a short list of five. And then um, I got the phone call. It's like, you know, they want to meet you. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, and went to the White House July 2016 and had a conversation with them in the Oval Office Obviously, I don't remember much of that conversation because I was so nervous, but uh, it was really mostly about what I did outside of painting, you know, so I was able to talk about some of the work I did with YouthWorks and um, working in Baltimore City Detention Center and reentry programs that I, you know, want to start in the future and that kind of thing. And, you know, we got to the art at the end of it, and I, I was like, you know, I really would like to paint you. And I said, but I, I didn't want to do it unless I could do it the way that I paint. Because for me, it was kind of pointless. And she was like, absolutely. So I still at that point didn't know that I had it, but I found out two months later.
2: Now, I believe that this meeting happened after you won the National Portrait Mm -hmm. Gallery's portrait competition for your work, Miss Everything. Mm -hmm. That whole experience, getting the support of even your mom, finally, Mm -hmm. uh, after you won the competition, she then sort of felt like you were an artist. You were a real artist. She Mm -hmm. understood what you did. That was the moment that really changed how you were viewed in culture. Is that, is that true? Yeah. It was it, before the portrait, even, yeah. of, of Michelle Obama.
1: There were two moments. One in the beginning was when I was, uh, I guess it was like 2009. I had applied and reapplied to New American Paintings. It's like a, a juried exhibition that ends up in a catalog. And that year, I got chosen as juror's pick. So that that was a bump because it put me on the national scene a little bit. And I started to get these phone calls from not major galleries, but smaller galleries. And, like, everybody has to start somewhere. And then um, worked my way up from there and was really at a point where I needed gallery representation. And I was trying to figure out how to get it. And um, for me, collectors have really been the... Advocates that I needed because they're the ones that can make the introductions because there's you know you can't just walk to a gallery and say I really want to show with you, (laughs) it just doesn't work that way. So yeah, my work was selling, but the funny thing is is like I was still broke. You know, it's like in the beginning your work is not selling for much, and so I think they were like seven thousand dollars, which meant I was getting half of that. Which meant if I only paint twelve paintings a year, I was making thirty six thousand dollars a year. So there was always like a few months of the year I couldn't pay. My rent and I remember like having to borrow money like just to get down to DC to get to the reception. I had no money and I was six months behind in my rent and I was like going through different scenarios of like if I won first place, second place, third place, if it was third place, you only get this much money and I'll only be able to pay back this, you know. And so I really honestly a hundred percent did not think that I was gonna win first place. And so that was a, a real shot That was twenty
2: five thousand dollars, I believe. Yeah.
1: Right? But again, like that's when the magic happened because I was at a breaking point. You're at the edge of the cliff and you're like waiting for the next step to appear. And there it was.
2: I understand that when you were in the room with President Obama, and Michelle Obama, mm-hmm. you actually said to Michelle that you really, really wanted to work with her. Mm-hmm. And at that time you were being considered for the artist for either of the portraits. Yeah. Um, did President Obama seem slighted by your wanting to do the portrait of Michelle more than him? No.
1: You know, they were both asking me questions, and then he was like, well, how would you paint me? And I was like, I don't know. I haven't even considered it. You know what I mean? And then Michelle was like, this is not about you. <laughs> um, but I, it would have been fun to paint either one of them. But I really think that I was the right choice for her.
2: What was it like when she came in and sat for you to photograph?
1: It was... Uh you know, <laughs> she's very relaxed, and um, so you kind of feel silly for being nervous. But I was really nervous and tried to be as present as I could. Because it's almost impossible because you're like, you're just nervous, and you know. But it, I mean, it was easy. I had an hour and fifteen minutes, and I just did, I did what I had to do, like set up the camera and like figured out where I was going to photograph her. And like I had to move around to different areas because I was trying to get the light that I wanted. Yeah, and it was
2: fun. Like, we put on rap music and just kind of made it happen. And were she wearing the dress that she was ultimately wearing in the portrait that you painted?
1: Yeah, that's the dress she showed up in. I worked with her stylist, Meredith Coop and kind of vocalized what I wanted, what I was looking for. And we started with 11 dresses and then narrowed it down to four. And then I had chosen two. And the one that she wore was one that I was really into in the beginning because of the— I don't know, like, I needed the dress to be a painting in itself, too, for some reason. Like, I was really into that. and um, It
2: was very geometric, very Mondrian.
1: Yeah, you know, and I I mean, the quilts was a, were the first thing that I thought about. And that was, for me, a connection to G's Ben and, like, Black history in a way, you know, but still connected to the history of painting and, you
2: know, and art in that way. Yeah, and it just worked. You have said that it's your job to paint people, and you were approaching the project of painting Michelle Obama as if you were painting just another person. Yeah. Did you feel the extra weight of her significance?
1: I felt the judgment before I even finished it. Oh, so were
2: were you concerned about what people were going to think? Yeah, I
1: feel like I I was because I'm normal. You know, it's like, of course, you're, like, making one of the most important paintings in the world, you know, you can't please everybody. So those thoughts did pass through my mind. And I just tried to push them away. And just like, I had to just make a painting, like, I just need to finish this painting of her and not think about anything else but
2: what I'm painting. You've said that as a portrait painter, you have the capacity to capture something that is not captured Mm -hmm. in photography. What do you feel you were able to capture about Michelle Obama? Well, when I first started to do research for the
1: painting, um, the first thing I did was go online and look at the thousands of pictures that are on the Internet. And all of them are her public self. And I really wanted to, because what I was sharing with her in that moment was very intimate, I wanted it to be a part of her that we don't get to see I think I captured that in that moment. I mean, I kind of had that feeling in my stomach when she got to that pose, and I knew that that's what the painting was going to be of.
2: The way she's sitting, it feels very almost Mm mountainesque. And I remember years and years ago seeing a behind-the-scenes shoot of Kate Moss, posing for the cover of Harper's Bazaar and it was revealed that underneath the gown she was wearing she was actually standing on a stool Mm -hmm. and it made her appear much, much longer on Mm -hmm. the cover. And I was wondering, did you extend the dress down further, it seemed, I was really trying to analyze it, like where could her knees be? And if her (laughs) knees are there, where are her feet? And (laughs) it just, she just seems so much larger than life. And this is a woman who is larger Mm -hmm. than life. Mm -hmm. And so I was just wondering if you could give us any perspective on how she was sitting.
1: So when she came out, we started with standing poses, but the dress wasn't being brought alive in a way that, you know, like really activated. And so, um, we brought a stool out, and I had her sit facing forward. But then the dress just kind of fell on either side of her legs. Like they were, you know, she sat with her legs together, and they, it fell on either side. And it was nice. It kind of laid out in the same way, but I lost a lot of what I was looking for. And so that's why that pose is so perfect. But she's, you know, she's sitting on a stool with her legs crossed, and so that kind of lifts it up. But then also the material of the dress is a nice, like kind of stiff poplin, and that has body. That's how it
2: worked. I know that protocol dictates that the First Lady must approve the painting before Mm -hmm. it's released, as does the Portrait Gallery's advisory board. Mm -hmm. When you sent it to them, what was the waiting process like? Was it, were you nervous? No. I
1: knew I had done the best that Amy Sherrill could do, you know, at that time. So I really wasn't nervous about it.
2: As with anything in the public sphere, there were a few naysayers about the work, mostly from people I, who I think didn't understand the work and what mm-hmm. you were doing and also your body of work and what it means philosophically. Did that upset you at all?
1: It didn't upset me. I mean, like, people can be mean. and like It upset me when it started coming into, like, my, my inbox from my website, you know, that people think they can just say anything to you and, like, the hostility that came along with it. And one of them, one of them, one of the emails said, like, you just gave Trump supporters something else to laugh at. And then the next day I got two emails from self-professed Trump supporters who are white men from the Midwest who were like, I saw you on the CBS Sunday morning show and I just want you to know I'm a fan of this painting and I'm a fan of you. So I'm like, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just, you know, so it gets at you a little bit because, again, like I have that healthy dose of self-doubt, you know, so it's like, are they right, you know, but but then you just let it go because it wouldn't it wouldn't have made it that far if she didn't love it and if the advisory board didn't love it either. So their reactions were affirmative enough that
2: I didn't have to think about the trolls. I want to talk with you a bit about success. Um, you've stated recently that success is wonderful, but it's definitely something to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. In what way? It means more work. I think
1: a lot of people don't understand that. It's like, oh, I'm here now, this is great, but it also means that there's a demand for the work. So it also means that, you know, if I was in the studio 50 hours a week and I've pretty much worked seven days a week for the past three years to get me to this point, the hours don't get less, they get get more. And you really have to learn how to say no, you have to learn how to take time for yourself. I've been the kind of person that has worked out every day of my whole life. Like even after my doctor told me you can't work out anymore, like I still found a way to work out in those 10 years waiting for my body to get to the place where I could get the transplant. And last year was the first time I skipped four months at the gym. And at 44, it's like not what you want to do, because when you start back, it's like, oh, my God, what happened to my body? But it's like, you know, those are the lessons that I'm learning, you know, because I I got sick after I finished that portrait. Oh, you did? Yeah, I had exhaustion. and It was just like the adrenaline left my body, and I was down for like three or four days. And so you have to learn self-care. And that, I think that's part of it. It's like everything comes with a sacrifice. Because working all the time means that other parts of you are dying. The parts of me that love to read, but, you know, it takes me a year to read a book because I read at night and I fall asleep in 15 minutes. You know what I mean? So, like, I feel like I'm not taking in as much information as I used to when I had time. But it's, you know, it's time, no money, or money and no time. And that's usually the way that it plays itself out.
2: And you've just recently signed with Hauser & Mm Wirth. Do you feel more pressure to paint quicker? I know that you paint slowly. You do about 12 portraits a year. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that that is going to be impacted at all? No,
1: I mean, I made it clear what my production was going to be. So, no, I don't think so. I mean, it, it gets easier because you start making a lot more money. To have to make that many paintings to eat is one thing. I can relax a little bit and, like, produce what I produce. But, yeah, I definitely know I have to make a specific amount of paintings a year, if not more. And depending on what my pace is, then that'll be what happens.
2: My last question, Amy, is about Mm -hmm. self-portraiture. I understand at one time you intended to paint a portrait of yourself— As the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. um, What influenced that decision? And do you think we'll ever see that painting come to life? Probably not.
1: Uh, (laughs) I was in the hospital. uh, Like my brother had just died, and I was like really thinking about stuff and uh, just thought about him and his courage because he had like a non smoking lung cancer and he was so afraid to to feel like he was going to be suffocating, you know, and luckily he didn't have to go through that. But just thinking about both of us together going through that at the same time in two different states and, like, you know, I, I left him, come back to Baltimore thinking that I was going to return and, like, all of a sudden I'm admitted into the hospital and so I have to call him and say, hey, look, like, this is what's happening. You're in the hospital. I'm in the hospital. We have to figure out a way to tell mom so that she doesn't freak out, you know. And so we did it. We got on Skype and... um you know, talked about it. But I think that's where the thought really came from. And I don't know. Maybe I will, but I don't I don't think I will. Like, I did a little drawing that day in the hospital of that. And, uh, yeah, I think I let
2: it die. Amy, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. And thank you. Thank you for creating such magnificent and important work.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: You can find out more about Amy Sherald and see some of her portraits on her website, com. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: For more information about Design Matters, or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie-Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie-Millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com.